Welcome to Caregiver Wellness Podcast. And I'm so glad that you decided to join us today. We have an incredible guest, but before I go into an introduction to her, I just want to thank you for spending these 20 some odd episodes with us. If you have not caught our previous episodes, I'll encourage you to do that now. We have had some of the most incredible and influential guests in the area of dementia and Alzheimer's that I have met. And I'm so thankful to be able to share this content with you. And I hope that it has made an impact or will make an impact as you continue to use these resources. This is our last episode of the season, and we're closing out our year a little early and look forward to what may come in 2022. But for now, I'll introduce you to Regina Kapp. She is a geropsychologist who specializes in working with the elder adult. And specifically, her journey has been in support of not only self-care, but most importantly, the mental health of our older adults. And this is such a critical, critical arena. And there isn't really enough out there of professionals um, that are accessible like Regina is. If you caught one of our earlier episodes with Natalie Edmonds and Care Blazers, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. So today we're going to talk a little bit more fully on this entire idea of how we prioritize our health and as a caregiver and understand more fully the role of a caregiver as it transitions with the changing needs of what's happening with our person with dementia. She goes through it step-by-step, roll-by-roll, and you're going to want to get out a pen and paper and take really good notes. Thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to hearing what you think about the episode. Welcome everyone. We are so happy to have you today. And I, you know, I'm well aware this is sort of uh, an Alzheimer's Awareness Month, but today is actually the International World Alzheimer's Day. So um, what an important day for, um, for all of us. And I'll just say what that means right off the bat for, for us, for Caregiver Wellness Retreat. And that is Um, One of our hopes and our gifts to you is educating around the area of wellness and taking care of yourself so that you can care for someone else. And that is our dominant mission. And and so we hope um, that you will actually take that to heart today. Um, The other thing is, is that we hope um, that that this will be a tool for advocacy. And I know we were chatting with Um, someone who is kind of dipping their toe in the water right before we got started on caregiving, wanting to learn more about caregiving. And I think one of the best things that you can do is advocate for other caregivers. When you see a need and you are able, because that will, of course, come back around to you as well. And that's how we all support each other. And of course, last is, uh, this is all for the love. So our podcasts are are freely given and freely recorded. Um, But if you do have the means to support us in any way, and that can be from uh, what someone else mentioned earlier. Um, I was so grateful for a caregiver who said that she told everyone she knows about this. I was like, 
That's amazing. <laughs> so I hope that you all continue to do that. So there are many ways to give back. So I'll introduce you, uh, Regina. You are like, really, I was complimenting her before she got on. She has this beautiful voice when she does her podcast. <laughs> so I tend to get a little more animated and excited so I can relate to everything is evolving. But Regina, we are so happy to, to welcome you today and talk about a really, uh, a topic that I feel is incredibly important, which is, you know, what are our common roles and how do we transition um, to becoming a caregiver? What does that even look like? Um, and we've talked about through our, through our many podcasts, different aspects of this, but I feel like this is such a beautiful one to end on because it really kind of the way that you define and clearly lay this out makes it, makes it more, um, I want to say graspable or attainable or not as daunting as it actually probably feels. Um, so um, I would love if you'd be willing to introduce yourself. Um, you have a long list of amazing qualifications, but I also love in your podcast how you simplify what you actually do. Can you share that with us? Yeah. Well, first, thanks so much for having me. Advocacy is a passion of mine. And so I really admire what you are doing with your, your caregiver wellness retreat. So thank you for the invitation and for doing what you do. Um, so uh, let's see, I am uh, Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a board certified clinical psychologist. I'm a GERO psychologist. So I specialize with older adults and families. Um, for 10 years, I was at the Atlanta VA healthcare system in an outpatient mental health clinic for older adults and also at Emory in the Department of Psychiatry. Uh, I moved to Atlanta from California, uh, which is where I'm, I grew up and where I went to grad school and did all my education and then moved to Atlanta for a fellowship at Emory. And then I stayed here. And then I met my husband and had two kids. And recently I launched the Center for Mental Health and Aging. And my goal with the Center for Mental Health and Aging is to destigmatize mental health for older adults and caregivers and to through awareness and education and then also to begin to build a directory of mental health providers for older adults, because we're really hard to find, like just trying to get a diagnosis or finding a neuropsychologist, where do you even look, right? Or finding a therapist who can help an older adult, where do you look? Or finding a psychiatrist, where do you look? We're so hard to find, even I'm a specialist in this and I have a hard time finding mental health providers for older adults. So my goal, it's a big one, is, is um, to, promote access to mental health for older adults and reduce stigma. And that's through education and awareness and a provider directory. Well, I love that. If, if um, and Kima, if those of you who are, are joining us, we actually have a, a group that is um, live with us on, on Zoom. Um, and we put that in the chat, but we'll also put it in the show notes and it's mentalhealthandaging.com. And just, even looking at the comprehensiveness of your website and, and the ambitiousness of wanting to develop a full directory <laughs> is amazing. Um, as someone who's in, I'm actually, uh, I hesitate to even mention it, but I'm in grad school for clinical mental health right now. And, um, and it's huge. There's, there is this, um, a huge gap, I guess you should say, there's such an emphasis on family systems and there's an emphasis on addiction and, and 
and an aging population is almost non-existent yes. in, in the education. And, and oh. I just share that <laughs> concern. Yeah. Well, 20% of older adults have a mental health condition. So that includes depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, and dementia disorders. Dementia is a medical condition. You know, it's a terminal chronic medical condition. And it it's classified also as a mental health condition because it has so many mental health um, sequelae. So that's like behavioral challenges that can come with dementia or psychiatric issues um, like hallucinations and things that can come with dementia. So it's also a mental health condition, but 67% of older adults with a mental health condition don't get any mental health care and mental health care, like mental health conditions is are highly treatable in older adults, at the same rate as younger people. So, um, the problem is there's not enough education, even for professionals. And I also do that, <laughs> but since this is to caregivers, I was just focusing on what I offer to families, but I do a lot of education and training for professionals to raise awareness around what mental health professionals in particular need to be aware of when working with older adults. Well, those numbers are pretty staggering. So it's like 20% that we know about, and it's actually, you know, greater than 50%, almost, almost 70% with, with, uh, mental health um, concerns or issues. That's a pretty big gap. And so one of, one of my concerns um, really for all caregivers is, uh, you know, what are we doing to care for ourselves so that we can care for someone else? And I'm curious, what do, what do you do to take care of yourself and your mental health? Uh, I quit my full-time job. <laughs> Let me add that to the list. <laughs> That was, no, no. Um, I was probably working a full plus time when I had a full-time job and was doing this on the side. And so now I just have a full-time job, I should say, but of my own design. Um, let's see, I do exercise daily. So I alternate, you know, like a four mile walk one day and a rigorous yoga class the next day. Um, my husband and I usually walk together. We have two little kids. We had kids later in life. And so um, part of our way of making time for each other is to walk together nice. after we drop our kids off at school. So uh, I do that and that's good for my health and my relationship. Yes. So those are a couple of things that I do. Yeah, nice. I love that you combine being outside and also that you do something that is free. <laughs> so um, I, think, I think we're often discounting how important it is just to simply move and walk and be outside. And I think that's really awesome. So yeah, it's imperative for my mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm excited to dive into our topic today about the common role transitions and becoming a caregiver. I was listening to, um, I'm going to make a big omission here. So I was listening to uh, you talk about this particular topic and you mentioned, I'll disclose this, that, that you I'd never heard this term before, are over-functioning or were over-functioning, um, which is a very fancy way to say that you put too much on your plate. <laughs> yes. And there, and there's even, oh, were you going to ask a question about no, that? No, I'd, I'd love for you to elaborate on that. <laughs> oh, well, I think most caregivers, so let me also give a disclaimer. I am not currently a caregiver. Uh, I work a lot with caregivers, but at this stage in my life, I am not a caregiver, though I anticipate that I will be one day. 
Well, I will um, say though that that um, the one of the definitions of caregivers is also caring for children, and while it is very different, yeah. it is it is an important caregiving role. So I kind of I actually this is my own personal slash professional opinion. Yeah, I don't have research to back this up yet because I, I haven't looked for it, but. I have, um, I actually think caring for children who are typically developed is very different than caregiving an individual who has functional impairments or cognitive impairments that require assistance who have lost ability. You know, caring for children, what children go through phases and people, you know, kids grow out of the phase and there's hope and it's supposed to be like this. People caring for adults, there are transition and there is a transition when you become a parent that is true there are these complex transitions that happen throughout our lifespan that are typical parenting is a typical and difficult especially for me I had kids in my 40s I was very well established in my individual life I was I wanted kids and it was really hard for me to transition into parenting but that is typical mm-hmm. and the caregiving dynamic when caring for an adult in particular who ha- is losing ability and losing capability is a very different thing. And um, because caring for children, there's hope, there's belief that things are gonna be different and better, there's growth potential, there's lots of supports in place, there's school that's free. There are, you know, you have public education, you have public resources, caregivers don't have that. The, um, and, and they don't get stipends. I don't think that caregivers are getting, have gotten much in the way of the, um, the COVID relief funding like parents. I think it's a very different thing. I, and the relationship is very different. When we're caring for an adult, we're not caring for a child. And that's one of the biggest complexities. We're caring for an adult who needs us in a unique way. And the risk is that we will infantilize them, which is very dangerous and, and detrimental to the relationship and the integrity of the person you're caring for. So the risk is that you're, you're going to infantilize them because the other way that you've known how caregiving works is with a child, but they're so different. I actually think that they're night and day. I love this. This is a hot topic, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I actually 100% disagree that caring for a typically typically developed child is it, it will be different if you have a non-neurotypical child or a child with special needs. That's very different. That's caregiving. Yeah. But caregiving for, and you're helping that child with their own identity development, living with a disability, that's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. Caring for an adult that you've had one type of relationship with, or maybe, you know, they say in, in couples therapy, I'm a couples therapist. Also, I work with a lot of older couples. They say in couples therapy, and um, Esther Perel says this, you know, if... Um, and, and everybody's life and one person's life, you'll have multiple marriages and sometimes it's with the same person. Yeah. And that's what caregiving is like. It's like you have multiple stages in your relationship with the same person and it can happen at lightning speed or it can be really slow and painstaking. Mm-hmm. And, and that's very different. And of course you're gonna be parenting your kid and you're gonna see them grow and develop into who they are, but it's, but it's so difficult to, it's so completely different. Yeah. caregiving yeah. typically developed children then. And, and there's a differentiation as well, which we talked a lot about in other episodes in, in terms of dementia. And that kind of caregiving is so unique and so specific as, as all of our caregivers here would, would say it, it comes with its own set of 
um, challenges, which before you even step into that realm at first feel overwhelming and almost unfathomable, the changes that you're experiencing. So what would be some of the things to think about as a sort of pre-caregiver as you're starting to embark on that journey? Yeah. So this is great because so uh, people who were sort of here with us a few minutes ago, were describing, oh, I'm caring for my spouse or I'm caring for my aging parent with dementia. And, and so what the quality of your relationship before your person, and so this is, we're talking about dementia, so I'm going to use dementia examples. So the quality of your relationship before you become a caregiver, and, and most of the time we don't become a caregiver all of a sudden, unless you have like a stroke and, and then a vascular dementia or stroke uh, with functional impairments and cognitive impairments after that. It's typically with like an Alzheimer's or other dementias, sometimes with vascular, it's immediate but other dementias, it's a slower progression. So during that slower progression, you might not even know the person has dementia, right? But the, the quality of your relationship that has existed before the dementia does is so important in sort of laying the foundation for how your caregiving journey is gonna go. Not that it's always a rule, but that it sets a foundation. So if you have a healthy relationship with your, the person you're caring for, Caregiving is all about a relationship, right? You, you are a caregiver and there's a care recipient. You can't be a caregiver without a care recipient, right? And you can't be a care recipient without, well, you, you might need care and not get the care you need. But if we're talking about a care relationship, it, there's a caregiver and a care recipient. And both have important roles in this dynamic. And, and the history is really important because it sets up you know, the health of the relationship as you go into it. So if you are married and there has been a lot of infidelity in the marriage that hasn't been healed or worked through or whatever has needed to happen to heal that, there might be in that history of betrayal, right? There might be skepticism or resentment when you're going into the caregiving. Well, you never cared for me. Why, you know, I'm resentful that I have to care for you. And, but I'm in this relationship and now I have to do it. Um, if, if you're caring for an aging parent who has dementia and perhaps there were, there's a history of estrangements, like being cut off in the relationship for whatever reason, and then you're thrown back in, right. That can also set up some resentments. You weren't here for me. And now I have to be here for you. Um, I'm thinking of other examples enmeshment. So if you were a really enmeshed family, right? And you, everything was everybody's business all the time. You couldn't make a decision without consulting with everybody. And it, and uh, maybe whoever you're caring for was incredibly influential to you and your decisions, that's going to lay a foundation, you know, for the future as well. And so the quality of the relationship before you become a caregiver is really important. And that can set you up for success or bumpy ride, it's a bumpy ride anyway. It could set you up for having a seatbelt or not. And, um, and so one of the things that I recommend to adults with aging parents or older couples is really to focus on the health of the relationship. And, and sometimes for uh, adult children caring for aging parents, potentially in the future, in the near future, it's focusing on our own health and integrity. And then if, if possible, or if you even want to, maybe the relationship's too toxic. I, I don't know the history, 
but then the, the relationship with the person to really focus on perspective taking, getting to know that person as a person, getting to know yourself and your own needs and, and values and boundaries, mm. and really just focusing on your own integrity and their integrity. I think that's a really, such a valuable thing. It's kind of like, um, I was chatting with someone about grief yesterday and she's like, when, when someone, you know, when someone passes away, you already are carrying these suitcases <laughs> and then grief happens and your suitcases open up and whatever was already inside is amplified. And you're, you're wearing all these things, these different emotions that just show up so much larger than life because an incident happened. And I think caregiving is very similar. It begins to amplify these things that were present prior to. So the two things come up for me. One, one is, you know, how, how, when someone is, is mental capacity is diminishing, how do you repair and work on that relationship? And then I think what I heard you say was, well, working on yourself will help you work through the relationship. Did I hear you clearly or what, what do you say? Yeah, um, both. Uh, also, I didn't answer the question about over-functioning. So I'll yeah, back up and answer that too. I'll back to that, but don't worry. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, well, so in the over-functioning dynamic, so, so in every family system, people take on roles, right? And so, uh, for example, I grew up in a family with a single mom. We didn't know our dads and I have four brothers and, and it was a very strained home environment, economically, um, emotionally, and in terms of the supports that we had in place. So uh, my mom had a severe mental illness and had lots of hospitalizations throughout my childhood. And, um, and as a result, I was the only girl. I have four brothers. And my role in the family was like to wake everybody up to go to school, to wake my mom up, to take us to school, to make sure everybody had breakfast, to make sure, um, you know, like I was doing all the things, kind of uh, parentified child kind of things. But what happened was that was my role. That became my role in the family over time. I really wanted to go to school. That was my, the, the place I could be um, thrive. Right. And, um, and so I was motivated to do it, but that became my role. And so I carried that sort of way of being over-functioning for everybody. So my mom was, when she was ill, psychiatrically was under-functioning. She was in bed all the time, couldn't really function. And so I was over-functioning to compensate for that in the family. So bringing that forward, I have been over-functioning in my life forever. So my tendency now in my relationship with my husband is, okay, if something's going on, like my, my four-year-old just hit his head and had a concussion, two days ago. So I had to take him to the hospital. Um, my husband was going to get in the car to go. He wasn't happy about it. But then I just said like, move over. I'm going to take him. Right? I became over-functioning, assuming that my husband couldn't do it. My husband is very capable, but I'm better in a crisis. But I, I just moved him out of the way and said, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. Right? That is over-functioning. He, he was fine to do it. He was in the car to go. And I said, no, I'm going to do it. Move out of the way. I'm going. I'm going to take over here. And that's over-functioning. So that's an example of how it happens. Caregivers are very vulnerable to this because people who tend to become caregivers are often, um, sometimes it feels like you're the only person to do it. And often it's because uh, sometimes I'll, often I would talk to caregivers in my office and caregivers will have been caregivers to many people. I cared for my son before he died, my first husband, and then he died. My second husband, now I'm caregiving. Like the 
often there is a legacy of caregiving in families and then in, in one, one person, his or herself. And so um, that legacy of caregiving, can, I can imagine, creates this role of overfunctioning. Nobody else can do it like I can do it. I hear that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how the overfunctioning plays into the caregiving and what the tendency might be. And these are like human experiences, right? These are just things that happen in dynamics and families that are typical family experiences. Brene Brown describes herself as an overfunctioner in her family. I'm an overfunctioner. I'm sure we could all identify in our families. Yeah, but my goal is to be Brene Brown one day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't it everybody's goal? Right. Well, so if if we are if we recognize this tendency in ourselves or whatever our however we sort of historically gone through our family, then how do we move through that? How do we cultivate a better relationship or or a better, more um, equanimous role for ourselves as opposed to like, yikes. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so what, the first is to raise awareness about your role. Okay, I know that this is my tendency, but the risk of taking everything on is burnout. And then when I get burned out personally, I get resentful. And when I get resentful, I'm not, I'm not pleasant to be around. <laughs> I have like, you know, irritable and edgy with people I love. And I don't want to be that way. That's not my best self. And, uh, and then I'm more stressed. And then that leads to this. And then, you know, my autoimmune condition starts acting up. And then, and then I'm more stressed about that, right? And so, um, so the first is to raise awareness about what your tendency is or, or what the state of your relationship or your own health is and what the state of your own roles in your relationship are. The, um, if you're with a spouse, it, you might be kind of just taking note or stock of what do we each, are, are we each responsible for? And typically in relationships, people have um, create natural roles in a relationship. My husband tends to do the cooking and I tend to do more of the child management stuff. You know, so these are kind of natural roles or healthcare stuff I tend to do that we take on. We never said that we were going to do those things. We just kind of naturally take them. And so most relationships just naturally take on roles. Uh, and families where you're noticing kind of inklings of changes, you might start to take stock of what are we each doing and what is each person responsible for. And then if like, if you're, if you're kind of teetering into what I call the ambiguous kind of caregiving place where now you're called into caregive, now you're not now you're called into caregiver. Now you're not like you're noticing maybe maybe some an older person you love just uh, hasn't paid taxes in three years because maybe there's a uh, Alzheimer's disease brewing or showing up and it's impairing you know uh, arithmetic ability and management of those sorts of things and so and you're realizing oh you have to step in and help fix this problem. So this is where you can begin to take stock of what is this person responsible for and where can I start to build up scaffolding to support them and myself so I don't have to take on everything as you know my tenant my personal tendency would be over so I, I don't take on everything. Right. Yeah. I think you know I was just having this conversation with um, where her father's dementia diagnosis was very new. And, and she, you know, her mom would call her and say, I just need you to come over and, and be with, be with me. Or, 
um, you know, I, I'm at the grocery store and I can't find your dad. And so can you come and meet me at the grocery store? And so there's these, you know, the, everything is so new and so fresh. And so there are these moments where she's called immediately, like immediately on call and then nothing. And so there's this sort of yo-yo of, of the parent and child, but I would also venture to say there's, there is, um, still a lot of ambiguity, even with the caregiver whose spouse or partner or they're living with, which is typically most of, of who our audience is for caregiver wellness. Um, it tends to be that, you know, they're even still living at home with them. And, and, and so how do you address that kind of, what do I do? I don't understand this new phase. Yeah. So this is really, uh, I notice with spouses, um, spouses see the changes, you know, like when you, when you see people's hair growing, you don't notice it in inch or centimeter by centimeter, but you notice it. Like if you saw them in January and then you didn't see them again till August, you would notice the hair growth. Spousal caregivers who are living with their loved one with dementia, they, it's like harder to see all the significant changes because significant changes are not like often immediate. It's insidious, meaning it's like slow and steady decline. And so it's hard to like really pick up on that significant marker of change. Like you would see hair, you know, and so it's kind of similar. And I think this puts um, spousal caregivers, it, it's a gift and a bind. And the gift is, is that they're also seeing the strengths along the way too. Like they're seeing, okay, well, they can still do these things, but they've lost ability to do this. And it actually might not even be as clear as that in the beginning. And, um, but they still can see often the person who's living with the condition sometimes. And so that's a, a gift because what can happen with a dementia disorder is we start to dehumanize the person and we lose sense of them. And that's one of the, I think, the gifts of living with someone with a dementia disorder. Um, the challenge though, is that the spouse can also, the risk of the bind is that the spouse can sometimes overcompensate for the, the person with dementia's limitation and then not really see the limitation for how severe it is or how dangerous it is. And so um, like with wandering, so one in six people with Alzheimer's disease wander, but I like to say to families, people don't wander until they do. <laughs> and so, and so like being sure to just set that up uh, sort of protections ahead of time is really important. And sometimes spousal caregivers might over have, have a harder, I don't even think it's harder. There are nuances in um, understanding or accurately gauging risk of that behavior, like, oh, my loved one likes to take walks on their own, right? But then that increases the risk of getting lost, right? So how much do we honor that person's autonomy versus the risk of what could happen? And I think there are different nuances when you're living with someone, well, he's been doing it okay for a week, so th then day eight is okay, right? And it's really hard. And I think in these cases, it can help to have a network of other caregivers living with the same condition and professionals who can help guide you because some of these nuances and dilemmas and binds that you're facing, there's no real clear solution. 
but you really need a sort of brain trust of people <laughs> to help you contemplate or really think about the risks and benefits that the honoring the integrity and the autonomy of the person with the danger potential. And those are hard things to do on your own when you love the person and when there's also pushback when you say, no, I don't want you to go for a walk. And then the person gets agitated and blows up or you know, something else happens. But um, it can be really hard to make those decisions on your own because of all of these dynamics at play. Also in this early like caregiving stage where it's ambiguous, like now uh, I'm getting called because my, my dad is lost at the store or my spouse is lost. Um, it can really help just to gain a lot of clarity and information and education about the illness itself and what to expect and really to set yourself up with supports and resources early, early in the process. We know that when people are diagnosed um, early in the disease with a dementia disorder, they actually have the best outcomes because then the caregiver actually gets more education and training about what they need. And they get like all that scaffolding in place to sort of support you and your loved one along the way. I think that's one of the hardest things though, that the caregivers just, they don't, you know, either they don't know where to turn for help or, um, or maybe they've asked someone and they've been turned down um, or uh, going back to the family dynamics. Um, I know some families experience, um, you know, it's the person that's right there, but then the, the other family member that's long distance, there's some disbelief that it's really that bad. <laughs> They're like, no, it can't be that bad, you know? And so we're, how do they build that trellis of support when either they've been rejected or there's a disbelief or um, they're just exhausted and tired of asking for help. Yeah, well, I, that is so true. I also hear um, some people think dementia is normal, right? They, a lot of people in, in the world society, we, we don't have enough education even for professionals. So if, of course, if professionals don't even have the information, how are caregivers going to get the information? <laughs> then, you know, like how are, how are their family members going to get the information they need to really believe it and take it seriously? Um, one of the things I do in my practice, and I would encourage whoever you're working with, physician or therapist or a senior living community day program, whoever it is, I would see if you all could have like a family meeting. So then a professional is educating the family members, extended family members. Sometimes I would have like conference calls with family members from all over the US just to get everybody on the same page. Like, no, this is let me explain what dementia is. Let me explain what Alzheimer's disease is. What questions do you have? What can I like? And sometimes these meetings would be 90 minutes with just family members asking questions so that people can get on the same page. That's so helpful and important one. Um, and really working with professionals around it. Sometimes even the, um, you know, who has the most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like who has the most potential for getting through to the person who's in disbelief and then and then try to get that person to talk to the person in disbelief um but if we think dementia is a normal part of aging we're not going to get help for the person living with dementia or for the caregiver and that's that's incredibly unjust mm -hmm. in my opinion and i think most professionals and caregivers would agree with me um so that's one is reach out to like a, a dementia education sort of center. Alzheimer's Association provides lots of education. Um, 
The other is to stay true to what you know. Like, you know, your loved one is ill. This is a serious chronic terminal illness, you know, but the more educated you can be and the more clearly you can explain it to others who are in disbelief and the more consistently you can do that. Also protect yourself. You don't have to continue to try to um, convince that person who's inconvincible. Just, you know, don't spin your wheels. You know, look for some other avenue. But, um, and, and then that can painfully add double losses. So not only are you losing your, your um, bits and pieces of what your loved one was capable of and parts of their personality, and you're also losing important family members because now they're not there for you and you need them. And that's so painful. And then who do you go to? And so you do have to build another system of support around you. And often, like you were saying, Melissa is with other caregivers who know what you're going through. Absolutely. I think that is, that's a really powerful, um, I just can't emphasize that enough. And there are, you know, just as you mentioned with the Alzheimer's Association and many, many other organizations and associations that, that provide so much in that regard. And to know that you're not alone, I think is one of the most empowering things, because I think, you know, when you get in the thick of this and you think, you know, either it's not going to end, which it will, you know, or, (laughs) you know, or this emotion is going to stay with me forever. And it's not. Um, But to know that other people have been through your experience is really powerful. Yeah, Yeah, I would also say, um, I think you had on um, a few, maybe a few months ago, Dr. Natalie Edmonds. Yeah, she talks a lot about also how to, um, have a relationship, like a caring relationship with the person you love and really honoring. I don't know if that's what she spoke on here, but really honoring their integrity and who they are and honoring your relationship with them. I think that is so important. So you can experience moments of joy so that there's not just depletion and loss. I think, um, one of my sort of passion projects is around dementia and intimacy Mm -hmm. like helping couples maintain intimacy if that's possible or if people are consenting to it caregivers sometimes don't want that the person living with dementia sometimes doesn't want that but um and then and and just how to cultivate intimate connection whether or not that's sexual or just touch or just sharing moments but how how to foster that intimacy because it's healthy for both people and Yeah. And I think that's really important too, is as a caregiver to look for your moments of joy. And if that intimacy is not with your spouse, um, to, to find other, uh, relationships where you do get filled up, not that, um, so maybe, maybe that is a sexual one, but I'm not intending for that to be, um, relationships like friendships that you can have deep, meaningful friendships with, or, um, spiritual connections or things like that. Yeah, but you do get close connection. Connection is huge. And, and I, I appreciate you mentioning, it almost feels like a taboo subject. I think around dementia, there's often, um, more, more conversation around sexual acting out Yeah, and, and someone who has dementia, but, but I love that you are bringing in this idea of, of maintaining some kind of, you know, intimacy and with, with your partner or spouse in it. And, it is incredibly healing, 
but also if stuff wasn't worked through could also be kind of scary. And traumatic. Yeah, for sure. If, and this is where consent comes in. So one of, um, I know this is sort of off topic, but one of my, it has to do with roles because when we choose a spouse, often that's a romantic partner and there's a unique connection, right? There's an intimate connection that we could be fostering or losing or both. And, um, and in that further down the road where there's, um, you, you were saying acting out, there's, there can be hypersexuality with dementia because of impaired judgment and emotion regulation issues, impulse regulation issues. But then there's, even in the person with dementia, very healing properties to intimacy. So in a consensual relationship with a person with dementia, that doesn't have to be with you, that could be with somebody. Um, they're actually, the agitation is decreased. Depression is decreased. This is for the person with dementia, even the caregiver too. Um, the depressions decreased, agitations decreased, um, the sleep wake cycle is improved, all sorts of benefits. Yeah, it's so powerful. I, you know, the more that I, I, I study and learn about, you know, the, the chemical responses in our body between dopamine and serotonin and all of that, which is another conversation which we'll have to have in 2022. <laughs> um, but it plays such an important role because you just mentioned intimacy brings these positive attributes and really what's happening is sort of all of the physiological aspect of that and and when those parts of the person with dementia um uh, are no longer apparent this this connection of touch this connection of uh, that sort of aspect and role of caregiving is so powerful. And so I'm just really appreciative of you bringing that up today. And um, yeah. For the caregiver too, I would add. Yeah. It has benefits for the person with dementia. It has benefits for the caregiver. And I know we each have our own system of values around fidelity and infidelity in the context of dementia. And that's a different conversation for a different time. And if there, but if there are ways to have platonic intimate touch or touch that is consistent with your values that uh, I think that's also, or, and it doesn't even have to be touch, I'm uh, meaning intimacy. So that's close connection. And intimacy has multiple components and sexuality is actually just one of the many components. It's powerful. The, uh, you know, the, the, all that we read about with COVID, I think it's why everyone's rushed and in, in many places in our country back out into public is, is this lack of connection. We're, we're really, you know, starving for that kind of interaction and, and uh, removal of isolation. And so um, it's just a powerful part of, of who we are. So, yeah, I'd love to just tap, we're going to, uh, we'll link to it, um, but you've got a wonderful blog post on this and another podcast on um, that really dives into a little differently of this top, this whole topic. So I love how we've taken a little bit different direction to it, but, but sort of the, the ending stages of, of caregiving and that, that idea of sort of um, your person with dementia is moving either in the later stages and you're, you're even beginning to rebuild your life, or maybe you're doing less and less caregiving roles. If your person with dementia is being cared for in a, um, an assisted living situation or however that's being divided. How, how do you transition to that sort of the rebuild phase? Yeah. So, um, 
the, the kind of stages of caregiving are, uh, I think there's a caregiver named Denise Brown who talks about stages. And then there's a psychologist, um, Sarah Qualls, who does a lot of caregiver family therapy and wrote a great book on this. Um, one of, so a person goes from, from pre-care caregiver to ambiguous caregiver. Now I'm caregiving, now I'm not to, okay, I'm definitely a caregiver. And then this role that you're talking about is kind of like this steward role. I'm not doing direct hands-on care, like maybe your loved one's on hospice or they're in stage uh, dementia. But this is like, I am actually in charge of the spiritual, psychological end of life for this person. And so um, that's a steward kind of role. Am I making decisions in line? And this is a big task. This is a spiritual task. Like, am I making decisions in line with my loved one's wishes? And that is fundamentally, you know, really, is there alignment? Is there not? Is there, you know, do you have the same system of belief? You know, it's really challenging. So then the, then that moves from you're a steward and you're holding this responsibility to your loved one passing. And then you're, you're grieving and you're bereft and, and you're this in this st grieving stage. So you move through that and then you're in this rebuilding stage and the rebuilding stage. Um, if you can imagine uh, a sort of pie chart. So if you imagine like a pizza, a pizza pie, and if you were to slice your pieces of pizza pie before your loved one departs, you, I would ask you to put all of your different roles into those slices. Like one, one slice might be caregiver and that might be like half the pizza. That might be three quarters of the pizza and then spouse and then um, mother and then grandmother or grandfather, like whatever your roles are, volunteer, you know, whatever your roles are, uh, veteran. And, and then your loved one passes and that caregiver slice is gone. And then all of a sudden you have this vacancy and that vacancy leaves a, a big void that over time will need to be filled. And so that's the rebuilding stage is then how do you rebuild important roles that are meaningful to you back into your life? And that takes work and support as well. So the caregiving ro role might end, but your role of, of reestablishing self and um, grieving caregiver, like the other pieces, you're grieving your loved one, you're grieving your role too. Mm -hmm. And so the part of that grief process includes grieving your loved one, grieving your role, and then rebuilding in your own time. There's no timeline on this. And, and you're not going to rebuild your pizza pie all at once, of course. It's going to be bits and pieces over time. Mm -hmm. That's really a, a pretty powerful visual for me. Um, just imagining taking that off the plate. Wow. Oh, it's yeah. And that, I think, probably gives a little insight, just a tiny scratch of the surface of what grief after caregiving feels like. It's just all this, this vacancy in space. Right. Yeah. What do you fill that with? Yeah. And I, 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 I would encourage caregivers listening to this. So no matter kind of where, where you are in that stage, just to allow yourself to think about that future person so that you can 
not feel like the ground, like the, the path, the pie is going to disappear <laughs> all of a sudden so that you have a little bit of, of a safety net. So whatever you're allow yourself to dream, right. To have, I think there's also some guilty feelings that come up. I'm not, I can't think about that because I'm, this is where I am today, or I can't allow myself to imagine a life without this person, but that's also healthy to think about how do I reestablish and what, what would that look like? And what would my ideal, um, you know, life look like with this change? And I think that's okay. You know, um, we don't give ourselves permission to do that when things are so urgent. So I would love um, you to share any other um, closing on, we really talked a lot about in the beginning about the family dynamics. And I'm, um, gosh, that, that was just so powerful for me to hear you talk about that and, and to weave that in um, because it's an opportunity for awareness <laughs> of what we're coming to the party with. <laughs> and so um, I wonder if there's anything else that you wanted to mention that would be helpful for our caregivers on that. I think that um, one of the things that's healthy in families are healthy boundaries. I think that it's also healthy in caregiving to have healthy boundaries for yourself and your loved one. And um, part of that is also being open to, and, and so what I like to say is, um, do you have um, clarity on what you're okay with and not okay with? And you might not know because caregiving is often, and, and caregiving relationships are unique. You may have cared for somebody else and different issues arose. Now you're caring for this person and different issues arise. So, um, you know, what are your own boundaries and red flags that this is too much? I can't do this anymore. Kind of really checking in with yourself and getting clear on it and giving yourself permission to also change it. So I hear a lot of caregivers say, well, I would never move my loved one into a long-term care community. And then it becomes unsafe for them to be at home. And then they have to make the choice to move for everybody's safety. And then there's the, I failed them or I failed myself or I went back on my commitment. And I think that it's okay to change when the situation changes and to change your boundaries and your plans. The, the nature of, of um, dementia disorders is that they're messy. And so you're never gonna have a clear right plan. The plans are always gonna be shifting and, to, and to, to make peace with that and to make peace with your decisions in the best way that you can. I really believe that people are doing the best they can with a very thankless task and I think to, to give yourself permission to change and have boundaries in the process is really important. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's a beautiful way to, to kind of close this session out. And so I'll, I'll say goodbye to our, our Facebook audience right now. And if you wanna join us live in the future, you'll wanna to go to our website and sign up for our newsletter so that you have that information. Thanks for joining us today on Caregiver Wellness Podcast. As I mentioned in the very beginning, this was our last episode of this season, and we are so honored to have been able to bring it to you without commercials and at no cost at all. And so we are completely dependent upon donors and others to support us. If that is within your capacity today, there is a link you can click to buy us a cup of coffee or two 
or go onto our page on caregiverwellnessretreat.com, click on donations and donate any amount that works for you. We certainly appreciate that support. And I am very anxious to hear what your feedback is today on our conversation with Regina. Role number one, the pre-caregiver, sort of the functional needs, you're not really caregiving yet, it's sort of living side by side, trying to discern what exactly it is that is needed and how you fit into that. So there's struggles um, that we talked about and the different family dynamics that fit into that. The second role is the ambiguous caregiver. And you often hear about this ambiguous grief that plays a big role in caring for someone with dementia or Alzheimer's. But the, the needs that surround this is an older adult perhaps needs assistance with daily living, really functional things. And there are also perhaps sort of these hints of um, cognition is weakening and they're losing different abilities and capabilities. And there is some sort of role confusion as well um, that plays a big part in, well, am I a caregiver or is this what I'm doing? And then the third role is really the meat of this, the caregiver itself. You know, the care is great, becomes greater than one person is able to do. The next role is the role of a steward. And it has a lot of sort of projections toward end of life. Um, you're uh, largely unable to engage in the care or the relationship. There's an anticipatory grief component of it that can be really um, difficult and challenging to navigate. And there is a fifth role as well, uh, which moves beyond this stewardship role and into kind of more, what is this moving toward a rebuilding phase and, and what is expected of the caregiver um, in that last sort of fifth and sixth role. Again, we are so grateful that you were able to join us and we value your time and the time that you took to just invest in yourself to listen and explore more with this episode. And we hope that uh, even if you're um, just listening, that you will share this episode or another way to give back is to simply leave a review and then more caregivers can find out about us. Thank you again for joining us and we wish you a very peaceful, peaceful rest of your day. Thank you.